Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Podcast Public Service Announcement. You're about to hear an episode in the middle of a multi-part show arc. If you haven't heard the previous episodes, we suggest you skip back to part one of this topic in the feed and listen in order. All right, Paranoid Strain Orchestra, hit it. Ronald Reagan, 40th President of the United States, is also one of the most enigmatic figures in modern history. From his start as a handsome lifeguard with a penchant for larger-than-life, often self-aggrandizing stories, to his career as a B-list actor during Hollywood's golden age, to his mid-career reinvention as a conservative politician, and eventually governor and finally president, he always cut a figure of clear, unquestioning certitude. He was a man who recognized that in this world there is good, and there is evil, and the United States, and by extension, its favorite son, Ronald Wilson Reagan, was always on the side of right and good, because that's how God ordained it. But at the same time, he was, as a person, almost impossible to know deeply. Famously, his biographer, Edmund Wilson, author of the controversial kind of biography, Dutch, found it so impossible to understand what made Reagan tick in his heart of hearts that he abandoned the idea of traditional biography altogether and turned his book into a semi-fictional experiment that is, by most accounts, a complete mess. We haven't read it. But to get the flavor of what a strangely hollow figure Reagan cut personally, Morris noted, Nobody around him understood him. Every person I interviewed, almost without exception, eventually would say, You know, I never could really figure him out. Something no one would say, of course, about Nixon. And while Nixon is arguably the most important figure in Pearlstein's four-volume history of 20th century conservatism, Reagan is a close second. And in fact, the subject of his most recent book, Reaganland, is Reagan's victory over Jimmy Carter and the resulting apotheosis of the conservative movement. Which, remarkably, came only six years after Nixon's resignation seemed to send the Republican Party into a long-term tailspin. By the way, that book just came out this year and, as I'm sure Rick would be happy to have us remind you, is available from fine retailers everywhere. Nope, he is not paying us for the plug. We just love this guy's books. But if Reagan was personally a cipher to those who knew him best, his public legacy as a politician, and especially as a communicator, is unquestionable. His clear, black-and-white view of good and evil in the world, as well as his unflagging optimism, was counterpointed by the man's absolute obsession with warning everyone about the seemingly never-ending series of plots that were seeking to destroy America and her innocent citizens everywhere at all times. Rick helps us get into his mindset. Central to Ronald Reagan's conspiratorial thinking is that the forces arrayed against the good guys are all constructed as kind of alien to America, which is, you know, the epicenter of all that is good and true, right? Sure, he sees the world as this kind of manichaean struggle between 
lightness and darkness. But yes, again, he said that his mom had a sense of optimism that is why it was as wide as the cosmos. And, you know, kind of so did he. Right. He always believed that God's plan was written for America to end up on top. You know, he'd always talk about how uh, providential it was that we were kind of given this land. The colonists kind of landed on the eastern seaboard of this landmass that went on for 3,000 miles, and then it was kind of almost destined that we would kind of fill up the whole thing, which you know, is a pretty nifty little <laughs> construction that doesn't quite help you understand the next couple hundred years of American history. And, of course, the bad guys have an address, right? It's the Kremlin. So let's consider the 40th president, beginning with a quick biography. Reagan was born in 1911 to a highly religious mother and an alcoholic father, a different but not entirely dissimilar situation to the one that young Richard Nixon was born into two years later. However, if the men's beginnings were similarly humble, the personalities they developed as a result of their upbringings couldn't have been more different. Nixon, the cold, calculating nurturer of grudges, succeeded in politics in spite of being almost uniquely unlikable, through sheer, unrelenting force of will. Reagan, on the other hand, was always the kind of person that others gravitated to, not least because of his combination of sunny disposition, facility with a joker story, and ability to tell self-aggrandizing anecdotes that somehow still sounded humble. In Invisible Bridge, the third of the Pearlstein opuses. Wait, is that right? Dictionary says it's either opuses or opera. Take your pick. Huh, that gives me an idea. Dana, how do you feel about singing the rest of your lines? Opuses it is. Regardless, given Reagan's fundamental unknowability, Pearlstein offers a great idea of how he developed his unique outlook. Starting out as a shy boy who disappeared into the background, during high school, Reagan underwent a total transformation, building his body through athletics and a job as a lifeguard and emerging as a handsome, prime physical specimen. But pretty people are a dime a dozen. What set Ron apart was how conscious he was, from a very young age, of the way he projected himself to people. A couple of clips from the audiobook help us illustrate. Here was a constant. If a camera was present, or an audience, he was aware of it. Aware, always, of the gaze of others. Reflecting on it, adjusting himself to it, inviting it. Modeling himself in his mind's eye according to how he presented himself physically to others. Adjusting himself to be seen as he wished others to see him. Until the figure he cut became unmistakable. So unmistakable that in a caricature he drew of himself in his high school yearbook, he presents himself in silhouette. And yet he is immediately recognizable to us, even now, as Ronald Reagan. He had become a virtuoso of self-confidence, a maestro at staging ways to display his self-confidence. The performances gave him an outward glow. People began to follow him, envy him. They doubted, hesitated, feared. He did not. He graduated from high school transformed. So that was the physical transformation that made it possible for this hardscrabble youth to eventually travel from his home state of Illinois, out west, to become a middle-tier movie actor at the height of the studio system. But his personal projection and magnetism was the lesser part of his magic. The real gift that would propel his political career was his unique ability to communicate his vision, one that reduced complex, difficult, intractable issues into simple, straightforward, black-and-white morality tales. And the reason he was able to do this, Pearlstein suggests, is that while most awkward kids who construct elaborate fantasy worlds of good and evil... And Reagan was definitely that kind of kid. ...eventually moved beyond them, Reagan lived in those boyhood reveries forever and brought others along for the ride. The long-delayed realization that one's fantasies do not actually map reality can leave behind a wrecked grown-up more alienated, helpless, and terrified than he ever was before. Which is why most people, with greater or lesser degrees of success, simply grow out of it. 
But Ronald Reagan was not like the rest of us. He was, in this particular sense, a much, much stronger man. Perhaps it was that he worked out in the psychic gymnasium of boyhood fantasy with ten times the furious determination of an ordinary boy. Perhaps it was a more mysterious gift. However the outcome was achieved, it's not a controversial point to make. At turning complexity and confusion and doubt into simplicity and stout-heartedness and certainty, Ronald Reagan's power was simply awesome. As an athlete of the imagination, he was a Babe Ruth, a Jack Dempsey, a Red Grange. During his acting career, this gift of gab was mostly limited to chatting up starlets and schmoozing his way into the leadership of the Screen Actors Guild in the 40s and 50s. But the final piece of the Reagan puzzle was his dramatic shift from New Deal liberal to John Bircher-esque conservative. Pearlstein, like other historians, is somewhat baffled by this transformation. Soon, a slow, subtle ideological shift began stirring in Ronald Reagan's breast. By 1952, he was campaigning for Dwight Eisenhower, but also for a liberal senatorial candidate. By eight years later, however, he was about as far right as a public figure could be, writing a personal letter to the Republican presidential nominee, shouldn't someone tag Mr. Kennedy's bold new imaginative program with its proper age? Under the tousled boyish haircut, it is still old Karl Marx, first launched a century ago. There is nothing new in the idea of a government being big brother to us all. Hitler called his state socialism, and way before him it was benevolent monarchy. Delighted at the spectacle of this Hollywood star calling a centrist Democrat a commie, Nazi, and monarchist all at once, Richard Nixon issued a command to his staff, use him as a speaker wherever possible. He used to be liberal. The underlying moral logic was the same. He saw good guys. He saw bad guys. Only the identity of the two precisely changed places. How? It was a shift the complexity of which he himself was constitutionally unable to convincingly explain. He said that he hadn't changed, that the Democratic Party had. That made no sense. If anything, the Democratic Party, by the time he became a Republican, was more conservative than it had been in 1948. But in our conversation, he noted that even before Reagan's move from left to right, his light-versus-dark, happy conspiracist storyteller perspective was fully in place, even when he was stumping for Democrat Harry Truman in the 1948 election. Have you ever heard the, the speech he gave on the eve of the 1948 presidential election for Truman and uh, Hubert Humphrey? Rick encouraged us to look up the speech he gave for Truman because it is so illuminating. Even though it's weird to hear Reagan deploy his conspiracist bromides on behalf of a liberal instead of a conservative cause, the overall stance is definitely already there. This is Ronald Reagan speaking to you from Hollywood. You know me as a motion picture actor. But tonight I'm just a citizen, pretty concerned about the national election next month, and more than a little impatient with those promises the Republicans made before they got control of Congress a couple of years ago. The striking thing about it is his rhetoric, his rhetorical style is you know, not in any way different in fact, he even uh, makes up an unverifiable story about, you know, kind of a little allegory to kind of make his point, right? He's talking about inflation, which, of course, was a huge problem after World War II. And he tells a story about a guy whose, you know, savings are so eaten up by inflation that he goes back to work. The punchline is the guy's 92 years old or something. I have a pretty good set of databases to look at AP stories, and there's nothing. I can say with almost certitude that there was, you know, kind of no such story. So that sort of fantasism was there all the way in 1948. But another thing he talked about was uh, inflation. I talk about Reagan's theory of inflation and how it was 180 degrees turned around from the story about inflation he had in 1948. But the similarity is that they're both conspiracy theories. It's not a matter of complex forces beyond anyone's control. It's that people want inflation intentionally. So in 1948, 
He says uh, the profits of corporations have doubled while workers' wages have increased only by one quarter. In other words, profit have gone up four times as much as wages. High prices have not been caused by high wages, but by bigger and bigger profits. And so in other words, that you know, corporations are kind of causing inflation. And then, you know, kind of by the late 70s, he's talking about it from a right perspective. And he says that federal government, you know, creates inflation intentionally and that the people responsible are liberal politicians who basically vote in cheap money in order to buy off the public and the bill comes due and they don't have to pay it. Right. So it's in both cases, inflation is you know caused by a conspiracy. It's not by this complex matrix of factors that are poorly understood. It's intentional. Regardless of the cause, by the early 60s, as we heard, he had wholeheartedly endorsed conservatism. For most of the 50s, the former Hollywood B-lister had become a household name as a GE employee and the host of the popular TV show General Electric Theater. By the early 60s, though, his increasingly strident anti-communist and ultra-conservative political activities had begun to make his corporate bosses nervous. Rick takes us through it. In my first book, I talk about Ronald Reagan, I talk about him as a fixture on the right wing lecture circuit in which, you know, the kind of discourse that he's unspooling is really indistinguishable from the kind of thing John Burke Society members are saying at the same time. You know, as late as 1977, 1978, he's spouting off this quotation that's attributed to Lenin. We will take Eastern Europe, we'll organize the hordes of Asia, and then we will move into Latin America, and we want it to take the United States. It will fall into our outstretched hands like overripe fruit. Lenin never said that, but it's in the blue book of the John Burke Society. And you know, even on the wall of the Reagan Library in Simi Valley is this quote that's attributed to Lenin that also is made up, and it doesn't even really make sense because it's kind of referring to nuclear war. One of his um, General Electric Theater shows was about this woman who I think was maybe in the Communist Party, and then she joined the FBI or something like that. And the striking thing about it was the way the show is presented, it's kind of staged like a like a Leave it to Beaver set, you know, so it's like it's like it's happening now, you know, even though the real story that this woman wrote a book about was, you know, in the 1940s when the Communist Party actually was active in the United States. This is kind of eternal return. The communists are kind of always on the verge of kind of taking over the country, even in the 1960s when there there was no Communist Party in the United States to speak of. 10,000 people and half of them were FBI agents. He talks about how communists had infiltrated this union that was involved in a jurisdictional strike in Hollywood in the 1940s when he was the head of the Screen Actors Guild. Even the guy who was the head of the other union that he was basically supporting said, no, there were no communists at all. But he was absolutely convinced. And because he was absolutely convinced and never would shut up about it, a lot of people still talk about this. So that was actually the case, that this union was actually part of a movement to try to take over Hollywood, to insinuate communist propaganda into Hollywood movies. But the final straw came when he started attacking President Jack Kennedy's plan for what eventually became Medicare. One of John F. Kennedy's campaign promises was to expand Social Security to include medical care for the aged, what became Medicare. The American Medical Association, which he had a connection to because his father-in-law, Loyal Davis, was this very prominent head of surgery at Northwestern University and very right wing also, was adamantly opposed to this socialized medicine. So he was hired by the AMA, basically the spokesman of their campaign against this. So he recorded a record album that was designed to be played at kind of coffee clutches that I guess doctors 
wives would organize, right? They'd have little parties, little Tupperware parties, and they'd play this record of Ronald Reagan giving this speech. It was called Operation Coffee Cup. One of the traditional methods of imposing statism or socialism on a people has been by way of medicine. It's very easy to disguise a medical program as a humanitarian project. Most people are a little reluctant to oppose anything that suggests medical care for people who possibly can't afford it. Now, the American people, if you put it to them about socialized medicine and gave them a chance to choose, would unhesitatingly vote against it. We had an example of this under the Truman administration. It was proposed that we have a compulsory health insurance program for all people in the United States, and of course, the American people unhesitatingly rejected this. Write those letters now, call your friends and tell them to write them. If you don't, this program, I promise you, will pass just as surely as the sun will come up tomorrow. And behind it will come other federal programs that will invade every area of freedom as we have known it in this country. Until, one day, as Norman Thomas said, we will awake to find that we have socialism. And if you don't do this, and if I don't do it, one of these days, you and I are going to spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it once was like in America when men were free. It's worth noting here that this sort of conservative and establishment hand-wringing about some new social program or other has been going on throughout the 20th century. Take, for example, Social Security. This sort of rhetoric, of course, is absolutely fundamental to reactionary politics going back forever. If you look at Arthur Schlesinger's book on the New Deal, his section about the passage of Social Security has all these amazing quotes about what people said about Social Security, that, you know, if people are going to be have numbers tattooed on their arms, America will be a slave state. Policies that become completely taken for granted and come to be defended by conservatives are framed at their onset as apocalyptic. It's almost like a template of how conservative thought works. By the way, keep those quotes and characterizations you just heard about Reagan and Medicare in mind. We'll come back to them shortly. So Reagan's bosses at GE sever ties with him in the early 60s, which is also around the time that his shtick comes to the attention of the then-ascendant ultra-conservative Goldwater campaign. They see in Reagan an unabashed and highly effective mouthpiece for the kind of ideals their campaign believes in, and buy him a half hour of prime TV time to deliver a version of his just a few years left or we'll be telling our kids what liberty used to be speech on behalf of the candidate. Influential Washington Post columnist David Broder called it the most successful political debut since William Jennings Bryan. And when Goldwater was walloped a couple of weeks later in the election, conservative donors turned their attention to a new rising star, the formerly liberal actor who made their policies sound so good. From there, the genial conspiracy theorist was on a rocket to the top of conservative politics, capturing the California governorship in 1966 and surprising virtually everyone by turning out to be a reasonably effective, almost middle-of-the-road governor. The shock for his skeptics was simply this, that the anti-government supposed incompetent actually governed. Amazingly enough, Newsweek reported upon completion of his first hundred days, the host of Death Valley Days has managed to close one of the widest credibility gaps any politician ever faced. And after he left office in 1975, the post-mortems from the guardians of elite discourse were much the same. Elizabeth Drew wrote in The New Yorker that he was a reasonably competent governor of California and that his administration was more progressive than his political rhetoric suggested. Richard Reeves observed that he had proved himself passive, moderate, and moderately effective at providing big government as usual. They were not wrong. 
As governor, Reagan consistently proposed just the sort of conservative policies he had campaigned on, most controversially, immediately upon his ascension, a 10% across-the-board cut in the budgets of every state department. And when passage of radical notions like this proved impractical, indiscriminate 10% cuts turned out to be a novice's fantasy, given that much of the state budget was hemmed in by federal and state statutes he had no power to change, he changed course, moved on, learned, and adjusted gladly dropping right-wing orthodoxy when more pragmatic solutions presented themselves. Of course, that middle-of-the-road thing applied only to the general drift of the state's policies under his administration. He was also known for his hardline stances against student demonstrators and other demonstrations of unrest that were unfolding in California's universities during his administration. He was re-elected, but then decided not to seek a third term in 1974, which paved the way for his first presidential run in 1976 during which he nearly took the Republican nomination from the incumbent, good-natured, actually moderate, Jerry Ford. Finally, in 1980, he secured the nomination and went up against incumbent Democrat Jimmy Carter for the big prize. And in a normal world, that's the point where all of the conspiracy theorizing would have come back to haunt him. After all, this was the man who started out in politics by claiming that one of the most successful and popular government programs of all time, Medicare, was the first step on the road to the complete loss of freedom and a communist takeover of the United States. Jimmy Carter knew it and was ready to pounce during the debate. And that worked, right? Everyone realized the Republican nominee was, friendly demeanor or no, prone to absolutely crazy conspiracy theorizing of the First Order? Well, not exactly. I've interviewed aides to Jimmy Carter who were absolutely convinced that all they need to do to get this election in the bag was have President Carter standing on stage next to Ronald Reagan in a debate And, of course, he would come off sounding like an adult lunatic. So Jimmy Carter is loaded for bear. And he he says this guy started his political career by organizing against Medicare, which is true. Governor Reagan, as a matter of fact, began his political career campaigning around this nation against Medicare. Now we have an opportunity to move toward national health insurance. Governor Reagan, again, typically is against such a proposal. Governor? There you go again. Ronald Reagan has a one-liner in response to that. He says, there you go again. And he delivers it with such guilelessness and such charm that people start laughing at Jimmy Carter. And that's the kind of sound clip that's played over and over again that proves that Ronald Reagan won the debate. Now, the ironic thing about it is when he actually said that, and spun this absolutely absurd story uh, about how, no, he'd never been against Medicare. He was just against one version of Medicare. He preferred one bill to another, a completely made up story. When he said this, Rick Hertzberg, one of Jimmy Carter's speechwriters, said backstage, they were high-fiving. They're like, we won the election right there. Of course, he, he delivered this fantastical story with such charm and guilelessness that people thought that Jimmy Carter was being a jerk. And victimizing this poor sweet man. He did so well in that debate, basically making stuff up, slip sliding around all the facts that Jimmy Carter had, that he ended up winning a landslide like five days later when the election was basically tied when they went into it. So Reagan is elected. And once again, while he is definitely an unapologetically conservative, he also proves willing to get things done, working with a Democratic House of Representatives and eventually a Democrat-controlled Senate to pass various sorts of legislation, including a historic round of tax cuts. It would also be unfair not to note that at the very least he proved himself in spite of a lifetime of anti-communist fervor. 
up to the task of meeting Soviet Premier Gorbachev's overtures toward peace and cooperation with an open mind, in spite of accusations by conservatives at the time that he had sold them out. And for that reason, it seems like Reagan deserves significant credit for facilitating the gentle and largely peaceful dissolution of the Soviet Union, a singular and historic accomplishment. But now, it's time for one big ol' however. Yeah, because while his attitude toward Glasnost was admirable, his administration also proved as willing as Nixon's to ignore and subvert the law of the land when it suited their foreign policy ideology. We are, of course, referring specifically to the mess that eventually came to be known as the Iran-Contra affair. We're not deep diving here, but you need a brief outline because it's complicated. After Iran's revolution and the taking of American hostages during the Carter administration, the U.S. banned arms sales to that Islamic Republic. Reagan, as Carter's successor, vowed to continue this policy. However, some in his administration were more concerned about Iran turning to the Soviets for arms and therefore drawing closer to our Cold War enemies than they were about shipping arms to a hostile Islamic theocracy. Ah, the Cold War. Indeed. So they were looking for an excuse to restart arms sales to keep the Iranians out of the red sphere of influence. Then along comes a complicated opportunity to exchange American armaments for the release of American hostages. Different hostages than those taken during the Carter administration. Who were being held by Hezbollah, the armed terrorist group that's backed by Iran. The idea was to use these secret arms shipments as a sort of twofer. We send arms to Israel, who in turn ensure they get to Iran. Iran then strongly urges their client, Hezbollah, to release the Americans. Plus now the Iranians consider the U.S. a potential arms trading partner and turn away from the Ruskies. But things got even more complicated when Colonel Oliver North... You young people may know him better as a right-wing blowhard on radio and TV. Decided to divert some of the money from the arms sales to Iran to fund the right-wing Contra force that was fighting the left-wing Sandinista government in Nicaragua. Which, as far as we know, is not located in the Middle East. No, it is not. But you see, the Congress had made it illegal for the U.S. government or any agency to fund the Contras, apparently fearing a repeat of the CIA's legendary, horrific involvement in fomenting revolutions and counter-revolutions everywhere from Iran itself in the 1950s to Chile in the early 70s. North decided that the secrecy of the Iran arms deal was the perfect cover to get some funds quietly into the hands of those same Contras. Congress schmongress. So, of course, because we're talking about this, you know the truth eventually came out. And while it became clear that Reagan had, at least at a high level, approved the ongoing arms sales to Iran through Israel, it was less clear whether or not he was aware of the arming of the Contras, which was the thing Congress was really pissed about. In the end, Reagan took responsibility in a speech on TV, but his reputation for laissez-faire management of the various intelligence agencies led to a general public opinion that while he should have known more, Reagan was far more likely to have ignored or overlooked the details than he was of being the mastermind behind the whole plot. In fact, the idea of Reagan being super competent instead of a power-delegating, distracted, hands-off executive is satirized in a Saturday Night Live sketch from the period which finds Phil Hartman playing for laughs a Reagan who's keeping all the balls in the air responsible for the whole scandal. And finally, Mr. President, about the Iran-Nicaraguan connection, some may wonder which was worse, your knowing or your not knowing. Well, all I can say is I didn't know. And well, we're... Trying to find out what happened because none of us know. <laughs> well, thank you, Mr. President. Well, I hope I've answered your questions as best I could, given the very little that I know. <laughs> Goodbye and God bless you. Thank you, Mr. President. Thank you very much. Okay, get back in here. 
All right, let's get down to business. I'm only going to go through this once, so it's essential that you pay attention. One, Casey. Yes, sir. You'll spearhead our new operation to fund the Contras. The C-5As with the tow missiles and grenade launchers will leave for South Africa at 0800 hours. I want you to supervise the loading. Two, Regan. Yes, sir. Well, I'm afraid you're going to have to resign. But first you'll make a public statement supporting me, which I wrote myself. It's over there on the word processor. Just key in and press file. The code name is... Oh, all right, I'll do it for you. Now, any questions? Yeah, those audience laughs tell the story. No one believed Reagan was mastermind rather than figurehead. And so Reagan got off easy, taking a big temporary popularity hit, but ending his second term widely liked by the voting public, while nearly a dozen members of his administration were convicted of crimes for their actions in the scandal. But why are we telling you about this? Because just as with Nixon, a conspiracy-believing leader comes to power and then generates just the sort of conspiracy that he imagined his enemies were guilty of in the first place. Wasn't the cold warrior mid-century Reagan worried about left-wingers subverting the government of the United States? And then he takes power and uses his right-wing operatives to do just that. So are you saying that conspiracy theorists who reach the presidency tend to generate major conspiracies themselves while in office? Well, consider the other major scandals of recent years. Clinton's was not a conspiracy so much as him lying about sex. Bush's fallacious rationales for entering the Iraq war don't pass muster as a conspiracy either. He and Cheney appeared genuinely to believe that Iraq had WMDs, and in turn, obviously with motivated reasoning, believed the seemingly cooked intel that they used to fuel their foregone conclusions. If they were deceiving others, they were deceiving themselves first. And the Trump era did, as we illustrated in our recent quick hit, have at the helm a conspiracy theorist of the first order, and did unquestionably show evidence of a major conspiracy by the president and his closest aides to manipulate foreign policy for personal political gain. The Ukraine scandal. We know he wasn't convicted for it. But there isn't any real question he was guilty of it, and that he had plenty of help from other plotters in his administration, especially Rudy Nosferatu Giuliani. So, we do scene three for three. The first and the most dour and pessimistic of the bunch was brought down by his willingness to go to the mat for keeping his own secrets. The second skated by on his own charm and reputation for general managerial incompetence. And the third just got handed his walking papers. It seems that in getting away with political conspiracies, as with anything else, attitude is everything. So as we bring this series to a close, we wanted to ask Rick one last question. What is Donald Trump in terms of the conspiracy tendencies of the conservative movement? Climax? Aberration? What? One way to think about Donald Trump in the context of the long sweep of conservative history in the United States is all of the nastiness we see with him and his followers was always present. But it was something that politicians, Richard Nixon, as we discussed, being the absolute apogee of this, grasped that they had to kind of keep out of the limelight. And that's where you get the metaphor of, in terms of race, the dog whistle. You tap into the feral, angry energies of the masses that elite is out to get them and and that sort of conspiracy theories in all kinds of way, but you don't articulate them yourself. You know, you do it through code, you do it through surrogates. But, you know, the way we talk about Donald Trump is he took the dog whistle and turned it into a train whistle. So he surfaces that which was, you know, kind of below the surface and institutionalized it so that the most dignified bipartisan committee in Congress, which is the intelligence committees, which, you know, was basically set up as the only committee that doesn't matter which party's in charge, is supposed to be basically 
operated on a bipartisan basis has become the most kind of politicized committee in terms of pursuing most feverish conspiracy theories, you know, the Burisma stuff, the missing server stuff, and it's been completely turned into the very structure by which Republican politics operates. And one by one, we see all these Republican, formerly respectable leaders, you know, the the Grams and the rest, you know, kind of surrendering to this kinds of thinking. So, I mean, it's, it's like the, the tail has come to wag the dog. It's very terrifying. Sam Rayburn, you know, the famous House Speaker, who was Lyndon Johnson's mentor, said, you know, anyone can knock down a barn. It's easy to destroy something. It's hard to build something. But the Republican Party basing its appeal to the electorate on surrender to the most subrational, re-enlightenment thinking. I don't know how you kind of come back from that in any kind of easy way. Jesus, Jesuit. Way to end this thing on a fucking bummer note, huh? It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.